legendary Republican strategist and political icon and pundit Roger Stone. Stone has served as a senior campaign aide to three Republican presidents. He is a New York Times bestselling author and a longtime friend and advisor of President Donald Trump. As an outspoken libertarian, Stone has appeared on thousands of broadcasts, spoken at countless venues, and lectured before the prestigious Oxford Political Union and the Cambridge Union Society. Due to his four-plus decades in the political and cultural arena, Stone has become a pop culture icon. And now, here's your host, Roger Stone. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone. It's Monday, and you the Stone Zone. So how did the red wave become a pink drizzle? Well, if you've been watching the Stone Zone for the last several weeks, I think you would have gotten a different message than other uh, alt-right uh, conservative uh, broadcasts, podcasts, uh, online news outlets. If you were watching The War Room, for example, with Steve Bannon, you may have expected a massive uh, turn to the right, a huge Republican resurgence at both the Senate uh, and House level. If, however, you have been watching The Stone Zone, you can go back and look at our shows. They're archived at frankspeech.com. We also put them up at Rumble immediately after the show. In fact, you might be watching us on Rumble live stream right now or on cozy.tv or on Telegram live streaming or Maybe you just went to stonezone.live to catch today's show, but you can see our archive shows, and we always had a caveat. It was right here on the Stone Zone that I predicted that, uh, unfortunately, Adam Laxalt, a very fine man, the grandson of Paul Laxalt, former governor and U.S. senator from Nevada, would ultimately be done in by the Clark County Democratic machine. You see, when I saw the final polls showing Laxalt with a point and a half lead, I knew that the Clark County machine could steal a point and a half easily uh, in their uh, scenario in which every single voter in the state of Nevada is mailed a ballot, whether they have requested a mail-in ballot or not. And we know from direct experience uh, that the voting lists are not clean, meaning there are a number of ballots being mailed out to voters who no longer exist. They've either died, or they moved, or they never existed to begin with. We actually had one man approach us in 2020, and again this year, who had gotten five different ballots to his home. I also know a number of casino workers who insist that they voted Republican, but that the batches of, of ballots that were collected by their union supervisors were 100% Democratic. How is that possible? Then, of course, there is the famous Pennsylvania, or I should say Philadelphia, machine. That's where you actually have more votes tallied than there are voters registered in certain Philadelphia city precincts. Uh, then, of course, I also predicted the Georgia runoff, which is actually a testimony to Herschel Walker and his campaign, given the fact that the mainstream media in cahoots uh, with the Democratic candidate Raphael Warnock threw everything but the kitchen sink at Herschel Walker, raising the question of whether he had paid for an abortion for a woman 
a charge that he denied, but ignoring the fact that Raphael Warnock actually ran his ex-wife over with a car. Didn't see much media coverage of that. And then, of course, there is the extraordinary situation in Arizona. Um, there's a couple things here that I'm going to read because I was unable to get the original authors to the show on time, but I found them extraordinarily compelling. Uh, here's a piece originally published by Tracy Beans at Uncover DC that is worth your time. No matter what the results of the midterm elections are in Arizona, Maricopa County is yet again the center of controversy, and for a good reason. Election judge Michelle Swinnick has come forward to report what she experienced in Maricopa County on Election Day. Judge Swinnick worked Election Day as a judge at the Islamic Voting Center in Scottsdale, Arizona. She reports that the center is in a heavily Republican area with no party designated voters as the second most populous demographic, followed by very few Democrat voters. This was evidenced by the fact that she checked in very few of them on election day. That is the job of an election judge. She reports she spent the entire day checking in voters. Per Swinnick's inspector, uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I have dropped a page here. Uh, per Swinnick's inspector, an on-site supervisor had advised that after the machines ultimately jammed, after being tested the night before, in some cases, 15 succession uh, attempts to read the ballot failed. An off-site supervisor advised Judge Swinnick uh, to, because of the situation regarding machines, to put all of the contested ballots in door three. Um, but we learned from Judge Swinnick that those ballots had not been scanned through a tabulator and put into separate black bags, and they were not labeled as misread. As a judge, uh, Michelle Swinnick told Uncovered DC that she certainly, she personally signed the sticker placed over the bag zipper and that these bags were sent to tabulation centers to be counted. Swinnick informed uh, the DC undercover uh, that the normal process for a ballot that is unread in this nature is for poll workers to run the ballots through the tabulators one more time before sending them to the center for counting. As per Swinnick, this was not done. The county had set up a website to give voters the ability to check that their vote was counted. That still exists. And if you voted in Arizona, we urge you to go online now and ensure that your vote was not discarded and that it has properly been counted. Because the race for governor is still up in the air, it's extraordinarily important that you do that. The problem, uh, as Judge Swinnick has said, has proven that the website isn't even correct and seems to be using a voter's check-in as evidence that the vote was tabulated rather than the actual tabulation of the vote as proof that the person has voted. Again, uh, Judge Swinnick uh, offered her first-hand knowledge of this. Swinnick says that all the tabulators all worked perfectly during the test the night before the election. The problem with scanning began immediately with the first ballots. Voters scanned their ballots between four and 12 times with very minimal success. Poll workers estimated about one in 10 ballots being read for the first three hours of voting. Again, the tabulators worked fine the night before. 
Voters were given options to either spoil their ballots and try again, or to drop them in a different section, referred to previously as door three. As per Judge Swinnick, their inspector had to empty the ballots from George three, three times throughout the early afternoon because of the volume of ballots that could not be scanned. Typically, ballots aren't supposed to be removed from that box until the polls close, but an exception was made because the box was jamming because it became too full. Swinnick reports that the technician came to the center between 3.30 and 4 o'clock Mountain Time to reboot the machines. After this, there were no further issues with ballots being run through tabulators. She reported that one of the poll workers told her, everything is moving smoothly now. It was at that point, uh, as I said earlier, that the, uh, that the unread ballots uh, were supposed to be put in a bag and tagged. But as Judge Swinnick tells us, that was not done. Uh, we have a specific example. Um, for example, Judge Swinnick says, my roommate ran his battle ballot through the tabulators 15 times as one of the first voters at the Islamic Center. It did not read the ballot. He then was forced to drop it in box number three, or in this case, door number three. About an hour after I arrived home at 9 p.m., my roommate checked the website to see if his vote had been counted. The website reported that it was. It is mathematically impossible for his vote to have been counted by then, since only an hour before Judge Swinnick left the center and the ballots had not been taken from the center to the meeting point where the ballots are hand exchanged for another transport team, which takes them then to the tabulation center. For his ballot to have been counted, it would have also needed to be sorted and hand counted by a team at that center and reported into the website all within that same hour. Impossible. In the case of in-person day voting, this proves that reporting of his ballot being received and counting is actually based on his being checked into the voting center and receiving a ballot to be cast, not the ballot being scanned and read through the tabulator or hand counted at the tabulation center, as we are being told. Uh, Judge Swinnick was also threatened by her supervisor, whose name was Timothy, for speaking out about what she had witnessed. The supervisor called her and said they have been scouring social media and saw posts that Judge Swinnick would be going on several podcasts to report information about the election. Uh, Judge Swinnick was told, uh, told Uncover DC that she was questioned about her podcast, what it was about, and that they accused her of already appearing on other podcasts earlier in the day, even though at the time that was untrue. As per Swinnick, her supervisor told, us, told her, if I find out you've gone on any podcasts, I will terminate you. She, she appeared on podcasts only after the polls were closed. Undercover DC asked Judge Swinnick for her opinion of what was going on and given her overall experience, and she said, in my opinion, the machines were programmed to do this, and it was all planned. It was brilliantly done. The process and narrative, both machines and people. They isolated the ballots uh, to replace or count them in 223 bags. The hard part for them in 2020 and during the primary was getting the ballots to match their manufactured machine count. This way, they have isolated everything in the bags. That is uh, our report from On the Ground in Maricopa. Now, uh, let me read you uh, an even more compelling report. 
This comes uh, from Aaron Clemmings, founded online, thanks uh, to uh, my friend uh, Joel. Uh, and uh, the cause of Arizona's massive 30% machine tabulator failure identified, which was disproportionately affecting Republicans and assuring delay in the counting of votes. Uh, this was written by Aaron Clements. Technical expert Dan Sundin, who has homed in on some of the likely causes of why up to 30% of the tabulators in Arizona could not process the majority of Republican ballots on election day. During the 2020 general election, the election program was set up to process 20-inch long ballots. This was a change from the 2020 general election and the 2022 primary ballots, which were 19 inches long, an inch shorter. So when Arizona election officials say they didn't know what happened on November 8th because everything was the same as it was in the earlier primary, this is entirely untrue. The ballot size wasn't the same. Why does this matter? The sample ballot PDFs published by Maricopa County and the runback printed ballots used for mail-in voting were correctly made to 20-inch length in the 2022 general election. So there have been no problems processing Democrat-leaning and mail-in ballots. However, the ballots on demand printers used for in-person voting only have 19-inch trays uh, that contain 19-inch ballot paper. This means that for in-person voting, the official ballot image had to be compressed to fit on smaller paper than it was built for. Compression causes the link to be a little lighter than it should be and therefore affects how the tabulators read the ballot. Maricopa County directed some voting centers to increase how dark the printing was, and this helped the problem somewhat. Uh, the bigger problem, however, is that compressing the image skews the overall ovals ended up on the paper. The tabulators use a digital map to know where to look for votes, meaning the filled-in oval. If the ovals aren't where they belong, the tabulator won't be able to find and read them, or it will misread them. This problem will call tabulators to improperly read ovals or to not to be able to read the ballot at all. This is what mo most likely caused the high rejection rate and why so many election day ballots ended up having to be sent to the previous referred to door three, which led to a whole nother set of problems and a lot of delay. We know that all delays uh, favor fraud. The equipment tabulating ballots at the MCTEC Center is different than the Dominion ICP tabulators used for in-person election day voting. Those scanners uh, are more forgiving for the shrunk, skewed ballots and are able to be manually adjudicated by election workers. That's likely why we're seeing uh, manually, uh, pardon me, that's likely why we're not seeing the same problems in the processing of ballots which were cast by mail or early in-person voting. Those, of course, are disproportionately Democrats. It is clear that whatever logic and accuracy testing was done in Arizona to get ready for Election Day was not really a real-world test. The logic and accuracy tests used pristine pre-printed ballots that were professionally printed off-site and were then fed into the Dominion ICP tabulators to make sure they were working. A real logic and accuracy test, however, would have used ballots printed on-site 
by the ballot on-demand printers. That would have been a genuine end-to-end test, and it would have been caught. Uh, it would have ended up being a massive problem had it been caught. Since Republicans were far more likely to vote in person on Election Day, they were disproportionately affected and disenfranchised by the incompetence or planned failure of election officials. Failing to correctly test the system to understand the effect of changing the ballot size was a fatal error, unless, of course, it was done on purpose. This amounted to a massive violation of voters' constitutional rights, which require equal protection for each voter under the law. This issue did not affect Democrat-leaning mail-in ballots. The Democrat-leaning early in-person ballots were processed at the MCTEC Center on equipment more able to process the skewed images and manually adjudicate problem ballots. We don't know if all of this was intentional or not. Well, I know. Uh, But the poorly designed process and failure to properly test equipment under real-world conditions would have led to yet another third-world election in Arizona. It's worth noting that the hand-counting could not be affected in the slightest by any of these skewed ballot uh, inequities. The key here is to get rid of the machines. Um, I thank Joe Oatman uh, and his terrific show for posting that um, because I think it gives you some idea uh, how screwed up beyond all reason this process is. How is it that France can hand count 34.5 million hand ballots uh, in hours and report a national total? How is it that Florida, a state much larger than Arizona in population, is able to report all of their votes cast in the evening, as was Texas, I think the second largest state uh, in the country in terms of population. Yet in Arizona, we still don't know who has been elected governor, which leads us to an extraordinary question. How is it that the mainstream media declared Senator Mark Kelly reelected with a 37,000 vote margin when there were still 80,000 votes outstanding. Could we count every legal vote? This is why I actually commend Blake Masters, the Republican candidate, uh, for refusing to concede until every legal vote is counted. Folks, this is really very simple. The massive fraud in the 2020 election, the fraud that the mainstream media keeps insisting with extraordinary discipline doesn't exist, but was in fact compellingly documented, has never been corrected. To the extent that there were election reforms, they took place in Republican states. There was no reform of the process in Michigan. There was no reform of the process in Pennsylvania. Although some hardy citizens challenged the constitutionality of mail-in ballots, which are completely unconstitutional, very specifically under their constitution. And the Commonwealth courts, their lower courts, upheld the challenge, as did the appeals court. But the Supreme Court ruled that mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania were still kosher. That's why I knew we would not win Pennsylvania. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, long before he said that he looked and found no evidence of voter fraud, when we now know, in fact, he didn't look, In fact, the U.S. attorney in Philadelphia wrote to President Trump saying that Barr refused to allow him to do his job, uh, gave a stunning interview to to Wolf Blitzer 
on uh, CNN in which he admitted that mail-in balloting uh, is an open invitation uh, for fraud. Uh, if you were watching Mike Lindell uh, on frankspeech.com on election night, where we had a terrific analysis of what was going on in real time, we actually showed you in real time uh, the ballot dumps that took place as they did in 2020 in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Michigan, uh, in, uh, and in uh, Nevada, as well as in Arizona. There you can see it, folks. It is there in real time. Unexplained dumps of tens of thousands of ballots anytime the race got close. In some cases, Democrats actually realized they had dumped too many ballots, so they pulled some back. Uh, if a man steals a car and there are no consequences of stealing that car, what will happen? Well, quite simply, he will go out and steal another car. So whose fault is all of this? Well, I would argue that it is not the fault of President Donald Trump. Uh, even though the Rupert Murdoch media empire, that would be Fox News, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, seek mightily to blame President Donald Trump, it's interesting how he's criticized for the candidacies of Blake Masters and Mehmet Oz, yet he gets no credit for the election of J.D. Vance in Ohio and the fact that Senator Ron Johnson, without any question the stoutest Trump defender in the U.S. Senate, won a narrow but spectacular victory in Wisconsin. We don't mention any of that. So what is happening here in this boomlet for Governor Ron DeSantis? Uh, we did do things right in Florida. In Florida, the election system was not manipulated. That's a good thing because no matter what they'll tell you, Florida's voter lists are still not clean and the potential for voter fraud was here. Perhaps Kurt Olson, who was the attorney on with me at frankspeech.com and Lindell TV on election night is right that the criminal penalties passed by the Republicans, uh, the outlawing of ballot harvesting, the, uh, the uh, uh, criminal penalties uh, for fraud, um, did have a chilling effect, although there's a lot of evidence that the fraud was not done at the individual voter level. The fraud actually existed in some of the boards of elections. In the end, it didn't matter. Governor DeSantis uh, and the Republicans won such a sweeping victory. In the meantime, remember, Captain Seth Ketchell joins us tomorrow for an analysis of exactly what happened uh, in this year's election. You're not going to want to miss that. In the meantime, God bless you and Godspeed. Stand up, Mike. How Democrats Manipulate Voters. Mr. Reagan. Why would anyone vote Democrat? I know. I know, it's baffling, it's confusing, it's mind-boggling. It doesn't make any sense. They're con men. It's very obvious that Nancy Pelosi is in office really just to get rich 
and to assert power over people and to be famous and to be annoying. There's no real reason for anyone to vote for Nancy Pelosi, and yet they do year after year. They voted in Joe Biden, a man who campaigned from his basement. And, I, and you're probably sitting there and you're thinking, well, did they really vote in Joe Biden? <laughs> and the answer is, okay, maybe. But in reality, yeah, probably not. But some people did. Some people actually voted for Joe Biden. And it's like, okay, fraud aside, let's just put that to one side. There is a large swath of the population that continuously votes Democrat. American voters that vote Democrat. You probably know somebody in your own family that votes Democrat, and you're trying to talk sense to them, and they just don't listen to you. There are a few different demographic groups that Democrats specifically target in order to get elected, and their primary demographic that they target is a demographic that I like to call morons. Morons are the primary demographic of the Democrat Party. This is the people that are getting to vote for them. But jokes aside, jokes aside, you know, I do think it's like low IQ voters. That's certainly one group. So when I say morons, I'm not entirely joking. There is a, an element to that. But that's just one group. Not everybody who votes Democrat is an idiot. A lot of people are very, very intelligent, and yet they're still voting Democrat, and it seems completely crazy. You've got groups like women. Women voters is a really big one, especially single women. And all jokes aside, a lot of women who vote Democrat are brilliant people. So why are they voting Democrat? Other demographic groups, black people tend to vote Democrat in massive numbers. Immigrants, obviously. And young people, college students, and just anybody like between the ages of like 18 and 30. They all tend to vote Democrat. So how does it work? How do Democrats brainwash people into actually believing the absolute crazy nonsense that they spout? I mean, they, they tell you that a man can be a woman just by putting on some lipstick and a wig. <laughs> they say that being obese is healthy. They try to convince you that illegal immigration is a good thing. And the maddening thing about it, the, the completely insane thing about it, is that so many Americans believe it. Well, I'm going to try to explain today why I think so many Democrat voters actually believe this nonsense and why Democrats are just so dang effective at getting votes. Okay, so what is this magical way that Democrats convince American voters to vote for them? Well, it's the rusty coat hanger abortion story. And I know what you're thinking. You're sitting there going, well, that's very specific, Chris. <laughs> And yes, it, it's a very specific example of a broader strategy. And the strategy is emotional manipulation, storytelling. Democrats are great at telling emotionally evocative stories. And the primary example that I use is the rusty coat hanger story. So the abortion issue is pretty simple. At what point does a, a little baby, an infant, a, a, a fetus, at what point does it have enough value that we recognize it as a society as being something that we probably shouldn't kill? Now, Christians tend to believe that that is something that happens at conception. Once the baby is conceived, if you kill it, you're killing a child. A lot of far-left socialists, atheists, Democrats, they tend to believe that you can kill a baby right up to the moment of birth 
and you're safe. Like, as long as it doesn't get through that birth canal, if you destroy it before that, it's just a cluster of cells. It does not have a consciousness. It does not have the same intrinsic value as a normal human being. That is something other than human. That is okay. You can kill it. And then a lot of people are somewhere in between, right? They're like, well, I don't know. At some point, it probably turns into a baby, but I don't know at what point that is. And so there's a lot of trepidation there. There's a lot of hemming and hawing. There's a lot of debate. There's a lot of discussion. I mean, there's not a lot of debate. There's not a lot of discussion. There should be. But, you know, Democrats don't want to talk about it. As far as they're concerned, the issue is closed. It is not a baby. It never becomes a baby until it comes out of the birth canal. Then it's a baby. Then you're not allowed to kill it. And some Democrats are like, eh, maybe first year, first couple years, maybe. But certainly before it comes out of the birth canal, as far as Democrats are concerned, you should be able to kill it. No exceptions. And here's the thing. That seems pretty brutal. Killing babies seems like a pretty brutal, nasty, negative thing, like something that most people would think is unethical. And yet, Democrats present the abortion issue as if you refuse to allow women to kill their babies, you're the bad guy. (laughs) We want to permit women to kill babies, and we're the moral, we're the ethical ones, we're the moral ones, we have the moral position. Now, how the heck do they take the high ground on this? How the heck do they convince everybody that they're the moral ones in this argument? It's because of the Rusty Coat Hanger story. What's the Rusty Coat Hanger story? Well, a long time ago, this is during the Roe versus Wade days, there was an argument for the safety of young girls who get pregnant. And the idea behind this is that a lot of girls in the 70s, the idea was that a lot of girls who would get pregnant, they maybe had these deeply religious parents, and as the left always characterizes deeply religious parents, they're always these overbearing, psychopathic, borderline murderers who, uh, you know, if you you tell them that you committed any sin whatsoever, you were cast out, uh, (laughs) shunned, or maybe thrown off of a cliff or something. Who knows? I mean, Democrats think Christian parents are just evil. They're always depicted that way in movies. Anyway, that's the way that they think of them. And so these poor young girls, they were having sex with their boyfriends, whatever, getting pregnant, and they're thinking, oh man, my parents can't find out I had sex with my boyfriend or they're going to murder me. So I've got to abort this child in some way. But because abortion was illegal in some regions, these little girls would say, and, and you know, they're talking about girls like 13 years old or something, right? Like these poor 13-year-old girls are just thinking, what am I going to do? I can't get an abortion, so I've got to abort the child myself. How do I do that? I have to use a coat hanger. And naturally, every single girl who wanted to get an abortion but whose parents were too religious to understand and whose state wouldn't allow their abortion, these girls were always so poor that every coat hanger in that closet was rusty. It had to be a rusty coat hanger every single time. Anyway, so these girls, they'd go get the rusty coat hanger, they'd operate on themselves, and inevitably what would happen is that they would give themselves some kind of an infection. And this infection would fester. And they didn't want to tell their parents what they did. But then, as they were dying, they would tell their parents, actually, I got pregnant. I had to have this abortion. I'm sorry. And then, boom, they would die. Obviously, this is a ridiculous story. How has this ever happened? Yeah, probably. I'm sure this has happened. Was this some kind of an epidemic before Roe versus Wade? I don't think so. I mean, from the beginning of time, probably since the Egyptian age, even before that, there were social taboos against sex before marriage. There were social taboos about unwed pregnancies. And so I imagine that there was different forms of self-induced abortion from the dawn of time. But Roe versus Wade was supposed to ameliorate that problem. You, you know, no wim- woman was ever supposed to have a self-induced abortion ever again in the history of the world because Roe versus Wade was going to fix that. And if we were ever to reverse Roe versus Wade, 
thousands of girls, little girls were going to die because everybody knows that 13-year-old girls, they're all just having sex and getting pregnant and they all need to self-induce abortions all the time. So we got to make it legal, we got to make it safe, and we have to make it secret from the parents. That, that was another thing that the Democrats wanted to do. And they would use this rusty coat hanger story to create this very evocative image of the poor 13-year-old girl who can't trust her, you know, vicious Christian parents. This was the scene that was set. And it's such a disingenuous story. It's such a vicious story to tell, right? It's not only dumb and, and just ridiculous, but it also casts decent Christian parents in this bad light. It makes them the enemy. So it's, it's sort of doubly vicious. It's not just stupid, but it's bigoted. And most importantly, it's misdirection, right? You are distracting from the main question. Does the fetus have value? Do we value it as a society? Does it have intrinsic value? Is it, does it have a soul? Is it something that we should protect? They don't want to ask that question. All they want to say is, but what about the rusty coat hanger and the little 13-year-old girl who dies? That's all they want you to focus on. They don't want you to focus on the question of whether the child has value. And here's the thing about Democrats. They don't just stop with the abortion rusty coat hanger story. They do this with everything. They do this with race a lot, right? They have this idea that diversity is our strength, right? And they use this uh, vision of racism to try to convince everybody that Americans are viciously racist and black people are victims and everybody who's not white is perfectly good. It's the weirdest thing ever. There's this story that they tell about Native Americans in the Old West. They say that the Native American used every part of the buffalo, right? They didn't waste anything. They used every part of the buffalo. Well, if you look into it, you find out that's not True. The Native American could use every part of the buffalo. They had a use for every part of the buffalo. But they used to have these things called buffalo jumps. Buffalo jumps was this uh, this thing where they would gather all these buffalo, they would herd them up onto this hill in which there was like a cliff on one side. And then they would scare the buffalo so they would all go run off this cliff and they would all die. An entire herd would just be killed off. And then the tribes, you know, maybe you would have like three or four tribes would do that. And then the tribes would go in and they'd collect whatever number of buffalo they want. So if they kill like 100 buffalo, then they'd go and they'd gather up what, like 10 Right. And, they, and they'd cut them up and they'd get the meat and they'd get the hides and whatever it is that they wanted. And they just let the rest rot and, and maybe let the wolves get to them or whatever it is. You can look this up on Wikipedia. It's just it's in the mainstream media history here. A buffalo jump or sometimes bison jump is a cliff formation which indigenous peoples of North America historically used to hunt and kill plains bison in mass quantities. The broader term game jump refers to a man-made jump or cliff used for hunting other games such as reindeer. But anyway, they don't really tell you that part of the story, do they? <laughs> they, they give you this, this concept of the noble savage where Native Americans were these perfectly good, happy, innocent people and these vicious colonists came and just murdered them all. They don't tell you that a lot of the tribes of North America were themselves absolutely vicious, 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 and would murder and rape other tribes and completely obliterate them off the face of the planet or take them over or rape their women or whatever. I mean, some of the Native Americans were just awful. There is evidence of cannibalism in North America before white Europeans came. So this idea of, you know, Native Americans being these perfect people is ridiculous. Yes, were, were some European people horribly bad? Of course. Were some Native Americans awesome, really sweet, lovely, nice people? Yes, absolutely. But you have both good and bad Native Americans, and you have good and bad white people. It's not like one is good and the other is bad, and that's it, right? They also try to present this idea, and I, I think this comes from a movie, actually, where you'd have 
these like white soldiers on trains just shooting buffalo for fun for like target practice and then just letting their carcass rot in the sun and and die and then you know the the native americans are watching this like a tear falls down their face like oh how dare they disrespect nature in this way (laughs) it's so funny how how uh, hollywood and leftists try to romanticize every culture except for white european culture but anyway that's another way that they tell a story Sometimes the story is a true story, right? So they'll take a story of like police brutality and they'll say, okay, the police, you know, murdered this black guy and it was unjust and therefore police are racist against black men. Well, if you look at the statistics, that's actually not true. The statistics tell a totally different story. But when you cherry pick and you find very specific stories to tell, you can manipulate the public and you can convince them of something that isn't true, right? If you account for the number of police encounters of white men against the number of police encounters of black men, because black men commit proportionally a lot more crime than white men do, what you end up finding is that police are actually more likely to kill white men than black men. And yet, despite the statistics, they will always tell you only the stories, the very specific stories of white police officers killing black men. If it's ever any other racial groups, they just won't talk about it. If it's a black cop killing a white man, well, they will never tell you that story. No, they will only tell you the stories of a white cop killing a black man because that's the story they want to tell. That's what they want you to believe. They want you to believe that racism is alive and well in America. Well, I do think it's alive and well. I just don't think it's coming from white people against black people. I think it might be going in another direction. Another thing the, le- the left likes to tell you is that obesity is healthy. <laughs> I'm going to tell this story uh, in a little bit more detail in another video here coming up. But the really weird thing about this is that I think this actually stems from a concern over bullying. And this is actually a common theme with leftists. And here's the reason why it works. Democrat voters aren't necessarily bad people. And they're not necessarily stupid people, right? Democrat voters are just very, very, very sympathetic. They're very emotional people. If they see some some kind of injustice in the world, they feel very sad. They feel it very emotionally. And so if you hear about a fat person being bullied... A leftist goes, oh, that's that's horrible. We should be nice to that person. And so if society presents people with this idea of like, well, why don't we tell fat people that being fat is actually can, can be healthy? That is very appealing to somebody who doesn't want to see a fat person get bullied. If you want to say big is beautiful, big girls are beautiful. These sassy big girls like Lizzo, you know, showing off their bootay. Leftists celebrate that. They think we should take something that has been traditionally ostracized by society and let's celebrate it instead. You know, that's a great thing, right? Because we're celebrating these these people who have been marginalized, right? That, those are the words that they use. Well, no, no. There's a reason that historically being morbidly obese has been ostracized in society or or considered to be unattractive or considered to be a bad thing. It's not healthy and it's not attractive. There's a reason why the health and fitness industry is one of the most lucrative industries on earth. It's because everybody wants to be fit and beautiful. And I've been planning on making some fitness videos recently. I haven't gotten to it. I'm sorry about that. I know I, I said that I was going to do it, but I can't seem to get quite down to the fat percentage that I want to get down to. Not that that matters. I shouldn't really care because I did lose a lot of weight and I feel great. But that wasn't supposed to rhyme. (laughs) But I will make these videos because I do think it's important. I do think that everybody should have an opportunity to be as fit and attractive as they want to be in this life. And with 
all of the tools that we have available to us from YouTube and, you know, you can just buy whatever you want on Amazon. I know we shouldn't support Amazon, but you really can get anything you want in the world now. Everybody should be able to get fit and attractive. And so there's really no reason to celebrate obesity, I don't think. I mean, it's instead of celebrating obesity, we should just say, yeah, it's not attractive. You shouldn't, you shouldn't ridicule people for it. But if you are fat and you want to be attractive, you should probably slim down a little bit. Eat fewer calories. That's basically what it boils down to. I have a buddy named Kurt, who I've mentioned on the show before. Good man. And when he was a kid, he was a fat kid. He hated being fat. He didn't like being fat. And it wasn't that other people looked at him and, and thought, oh, you're fat. You know, he, he grew up in Hawaii. A lot of the kids were fat. That wasn't really a big deal to him. He just didn't like how it looked on him. He thought he looked bad. And he did recognize that society saw thinner men with better level of fitness, more muscular men, more attractive than fat, flabby men. And Kurt was like, I want to be like that. I want to be fit. I want to be attractive. I want to be muscular. So he started working out. He worked out every day and he got on a good diet regimen. And what happened to Kurt? He got super fit. When he was in his 20s, Kurt was super fit. And he looked great and he loved it. And I talked to him about it the other day and he said, you know what? I'm glad that society pressured me to be fit because I got a lot healthier than I would have been otherwise. I would have been fat. I would have been out of shape. I wouldn't have been able to be as fit uh, as, as I am now. And, you know, I have society to thank for that. Now, I don't recommend that people go around bullying people for being overweight, but the other way isn't good either. It's not good to to say that, oh, you know, obesity is beautiful and we have an anorexia epidemic, right? We don't have an anorexia epidemic. We have the opposite. Can people be anorexic and is, can that be a problem? Yes. But I think too often people look at girls who are actually of a healthy size, who look very fit, who look very attractive, and they say, she's so anorexic. I think she might be anorexic. Well, no, she's just normal looking. She just looks skinny and healthy like people used to look pretty much everywhere in European countries. And so it's this bullying story that they use to try to push their ideology. Another story is the turtle straw video. I don't know if you guys saw this video a few years ago. This is maybe 10, 15 years ago, something like that. This turtle had a straw up its nose and somebody pulls the straw out of its nose. Fascinating video, went viral, I popped up on social media like 10 times for me and, and anyway it was it was an interesting video to watch but this one stupid viral video convinced entire state governments to ban straws because one stupid turtle got a stupid straw up its stupid nose and I mean that just goes to show you the power of storytelling you tell one story about one stupid turtle and one stupid straw no straws you're not allowed to have straws anymore people it is insane it's insane people are just so dang gullible. How many turtles got straws up its nose? Was this a, a huge problem? No, it was one turtle. One. Now, no straws for anybody. You know why? It's, it's, because, it's the same reason people don't want to see fat kids get bullied. They're like, that poor turtle was bullied by that straw. We've got to ban straws. And so now this ties into my next subject, which is gay people and transgender people. So they got this idea that transgender Americans are in some kind of massive amount of danger. They're all in danger. They're being killed. We're being killed, they'll say to you on Twitter. And I've never heard of this happening. I've never heard of any transgender person anywhere being murdered for being transgender. I've never heard of this. Wouldn't this be in the news all the time if this was happening so much? It's known that trans 
men, men who dress like women, do tend to get murdered more often than the rest of the population. And so I read an article about this, and what it said was that for whatever reason, transgender men, men that dress like women, have this weird propensity to violence, and they tend to murder each other. It's this weird thing. They tend to be murdered by other trans men. It's like the trans community is very murdery. So it's not like it's a bunch of like straight, you know, normal dudes run around going, hey, you're not a woman. Get over here. I'm going to kill you. But that that's what they want you to believe. Right. That's the story they tell. It's sort of like the Asians that are getting attacked all over America, especially like L.A., San Francisco, New York by black men. And the news media comes out and they go, white supremacists are attacking Asian men. And you watch the news, like, clearly black guys. <laughs> like, what is going on here? But this all started with, I believe it started with Matthew Shepard, right? Matthew Shepard. And there was this story that the LGBT community told and the Democrats told, and it completely changed how America perceived gay men. The Matthew Shepard story was a story about this gay guy, I think it was in Wyoming or something like that, and he was tied to a fence and beaten to death. And the media narrative was that the reason that that was done was because he was gay. And this completely changed America's perception of gay men. And in the 90s, you got to understand, like a lot of young people don't remember this, but in the 90s, the whole gay movement was like crazy. Being gay was like a, a weird lifestyle choice where, you know, everybody talked with a list. Most gay men that I ever met, and I went to school in University of Miami, so I met a lot, uh, were flamboyantly gay. I mean, they were definitely like expressive about their homosexuality. And so Americans, I think, naturally had this kind of aversion and, and to, to homosexuality. They thought it was weird. And they didn't really have a lot of sympathy for the gay movement as a political movement. But then Matthew Shepard was killed and everybody had this a massive amount of sympathy for Matthew Shepard. And the story was told that if you were a gay man in America, then you were constantly in danger of being murdered by straight white men. And there was this kind of narrative like straight white men are essentially bad guys. Like if you're a straight white man, you're just born with this impulse. You want to kill the gays, right? <laughs> and I was actually talking to my friend in L.A. about this when I was coming up with this video. I caught he happened to call and we were just chit chatting. And I said, do you do you get the sense that when you talk to me uh, that I'm always like deep down somewhere, I'm like contemplating murdering you? <laughs> and of course, you know, we had like a good laugh over that. But. No, it's just not true. Straight white men don't want to run around murdering gay dudes, okay? And here's the really ironic thing. Turns out that Matthew Shepard was not murdered because he was gay. There's a guy who wrote a book on this, and this guy is a gay man, and he went out and he researched this murder, right? He went out and he researched it because he was going to write a screenplay and sell it to Hollywood and make a bunch of money. But what he found out was that actually Matthew Shepard was not murdered because he was gay. He was murdered because he had drugs and he was dealing with other guys who wanted to do drugs. This was all about meth. Most of you remember the horrific murder of Matthew Shepard in Wyoming back in 1998. The national media covered it and the trial of the men convicted of Matt's murder as a hate crime. Our first guest is an investigative journalist who spent 13 years traveling to 20 states and uh, interviewed more than 100 witnesses about this murder. And he's here to talk about the results of his investigation and also his book, The Book of Matt, Hidden Truths About the Murder of Matthew Shepard. Well, you went, to, uh, you went to Laramie thinking that this was a hate crime. Yes, absolutely. And you found something else out. I did. It was centered around the drug methamphetamine, mm -hmm. which at the time really was not being reported on nationally. Remember, this is 15 years ago. In 1998, it, 
meth was already becoming a very big problem in Wyoming and in other states in the, in the Midwest and the West, but it really wasn't being discussed. And at the very same time, it was also starting to become a serious problem in the gay community in urban gay enclaves. What you touch on in your book, and I wish we had more time to talk about it, is that they, had, they knew each other. They Aaron, had somewhat of a relationship yes. before the murder. Yes, Aaron McKinney and Matthew Shepard knew each other for months before the crime happened and were friends. And that's something that was never explored originally. And of course we're saying um, it, was, it was characterized as a hate crime because Matthew Shepard, he was openly gay. And you are a gay man as yes, well. Yes, I am. So did you feel the connection in that way? Well, I did. That's, that's originally why I went to Laramie is to write the story of the hate crime. As a, screen, as a movie, I thought it was really important to tell the story in a long form because I thought it was really important. And I still think, I mean, this was a horribly violent crime. Nothing mm -hmm. takes away from that. But I do believe the complexities, it's worth uh, us understanding the complexities. If we're serious about preventing crimes like this from happening in the future, and I don't think at the time the public was aware of, uh, the many the many negative uh, aspects of methamphetamine that it can cause psychotic episodes, psychotic violence, hallucinations. Uh, you know, we now understand what meth psychosis is, meth induced psychosis, meth rage. So yeah, so the whole Matthew Shepard story that the left wing media shared to all Americans in order to make them sympathetic to gay men, it was all a lie. And finally, I would just like to say this. According to leftists, certain people are born a certain way and they can't help it and we have to be sympathetic to them. But then they also say that straight white men are born with the impulse to kill gay men. And so if that's true, shouldn't you just accept us the way we are? I'm sorry, I was born this way. Well, that's it for me. <laughs> and remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant, it's just they know so much that is not so. Good night. We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening.